it is about attending a ball that you shouldn't be at above your station. Um, having this this wonderful night that ends at the stroke of midnight, where you know you revert back to your normal self, um, and 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 you have to run away. <laughs> uh, and in here, uh, instead, she uh, wreaks havoc on everybody who has kept her down, held her down, kept her out of this place. Um, and it's it's like it's like Cinderella's revenge. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can see that, yeah. It's cool. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. As an, it, it, Thinking of it as an inversion of the Cinderella fairy tale, uh, I thought was fascinating. And also was insight to me and how he crafted this entire book. episode 205 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss Stephen King's 1974 novel, Carrie. Is it weird that I feel like a warm sense of cozy, just happiness coming back to Stephen King? <laughs> like, that's not the emotion you should be feeling reading Stephen King, yet I still feel that way. <laughs> I think he's he's does a great job of always setting up a familiar sort of uh, world for us and then takes us through the terrors that he wants. And but I felt the same way. You know, Stephen King has meant so much to this podcast because we've covered him so many times. And his you know, his work has just like always been something that we enjoyed. But it, it's it's familiar. It feels like almost safe of a story for us to be like like for a project for this podcast. It's always felt like a a surefire home run sort of thing that we're going to like, at least even if we don't particularly love the work, which most of the time we do, uh, it's got plenty to dig into. So we should make sure we're being clear here. I'm not saying this is a cozy story or that this yeah. story is particularly safe. It's more just like you said, us covering it, right? Like this is our comfort zone. Um, we like talking about his work and I I always feel a sense of comfort when I feel like I'm in the hands of someone who really knows what they're doing when it comes to writing. And um, I'm pleased to report that even in his first novel, I felt that way. It was a fascinating journey. Putting this in the oeuvre of of Stephen King and thinking yeah. of it as his first novel, and I'm sure yours had the foreword that mine had, right? Where he sort of yes. set up where he was at in his life and... Uh, the way that the story came about and, and he, he even kind of mentions how there's like two two girls that he knew growing up that sort of inspired some of the story of Carrie. Right. Um, yeah. He said that Carrie is essentially a combination of two different girls he knew growing up. He didn't name them um, out of respect for them because I guess both of them died. One of them by suicide and one of them, um, I think, had a seizure and died from it. And I guess they were both bullied and and he it sounds like he went to school with them or at least was aware of them and uh i can definitely tell that there was a personal connection to carrie and and the empathy he was able to find for the character but then also i mean so much to talk about with with the way the story plays out and like the sort of themes and 
and yeah. messaging you can pull out of it is, is really interesting. And on the surface, like the ghosts of the past, like I think everyone, at least I'm willing to admit myself, like I feel that I've been in situations where, especially when I was younger, not, you know, nowadays I feel confident enough to speak up in these kinds of situations, but there's absolutely times that I saw someone being bullied and, and could have done more, but it wasn't necessarily the cool thing to do. And like how that is haunting as an adult to think about like, how that affects some kids are so shaped by like the things that go on when they're young and and like just like you never know the upbringing that someone's having and and like just in hindsight it's it is this thing that I think is universal for from my perspective at least yeah um and whether or not it's universal it's definitely broad enough that a lot of people seem to connect with it and I agree you know and I think you're you're touching on something that I picked up on too and he mentions how he didn't participate in the bullying of uh, this one particular girl who ended up committing suicide. I think it was that one. Um, but he didn't stop it. Right. And he, he he moves through that, you know, I mean, fairly quickly, but I definitely detect some shame there. Exactly. And I think that that is definitely present in the character of Sue and, and a lot of what goes on here and, and possibly in the uh, teacher character too, uh, Dis Jordan, I think is her name. Um I, I really felt like he was writing himself into this book in, in many ways. But before we get too far along, I want to start with our history with Carrie. I had seen I've seen the movie at some point. Don't remember nearly enough about it to like really the piece it original. together. The De Palma film. Yeah. And uh, the things that I remembered are the blood scene, like the big moments in the story I remembered as. So I knew like what we were heading towards. But I didn't remember how we got there or sort of the like layered world that's created. Um, so, you know, I, I, I like the idea of the story. And I was, you know, I was always like, oh, I'm sure it's going to be great because it's Stephen King. But I don't think I realized how much it would affect me in the like I thought it was kind of going to be something that I'd seen. But in the way that Stephen King does, like, of course, this stuff is influential, but it is like it's original and it's it's affecting. And I'm s still so surprised that uh blue collar like white guy from the middle of everywhere wrote a story that seems very personal to a woman's journey and growing up and specifics of like coming of age and the, the things that they deal with from the other sex men like like sexualizing them and also they're dealing with physical changes and like to to i just thought that was a you know it, it had to especially in the 70s like i think it was a harder thing for for king to write in that in that climate and i think that's probably why it's affecting to to everyone i think everyone can see a little bit of themselves in the story and then i think i would assume women probably respond pretty well to it uh, or at least did it went at the release of the at the novel yeah i mean i can't i'm not going to speak for women <laughs> you know what i mean but uh all i can say is i've you know i've seen the range of re reactions to not only this novel but Stephen King's writing of women in general um, from people. I mean, he has a legion of women who love his books. Uh, we've talked about how my mother was one of them. Um, he was he was her favorite author uh, before she passed away. And I think she was not, you know, there was a lot of women who shared her view, like loved his stuff. Um, and there is still. Um, there is, of, of course, a lot of women who don't like it, right? And who who... I've seen people pull out his writing, like lift passages of his writing, describing something 
you know, whether it's a woman's body or whether it's, you know, how they feel at a certain time or whatever. And, and being like, this is, you know, that example of men writing women poorly. And like, I've seen King even trot it out for those examples. So um, it's also not to say, cause like, I think one thing that um, we haven't gotten too far into yet, but with King is definitely true. Um, his, his um, quality of writing is not consistent. <laughs> there is, there are periods of of years. There are different books that people like widely go. Yeah, that was definitely one of his worst novels. Like he, I mean, that, that's bound to happen when you're as prolific as him, but also he had periods of his life where he was struggling with addiction and um, his life was a mess. And sometimes that can lead to difficulties with writing and everything like that. But it just seems like difficult subject matter to tackle from the perspective of a man. Like I think about trying to write a story like this and I'm like, this is this touchy, touchy area to get into. And like, I, I have several, you know, I have several quotes about that that I think are interesting that I'm going to touch on. But before we do, I wanted to mention my experience, uh, uh, history with this. Um, Carrie is much like the Godfather to me, a story that I felt like I knew every single detail of without having ever seen a movie or read this novel. Um, I I just know the story of Carrie. Like, people have talked about it enough. I've seen it referenced a million times. Um, people dress up as Carrie for Halloween, and they talk about it. Like, I, I've just seen so much, and I've seen so many. You've definitely seen the, the blood scene before. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but I've never seen the movie. So that's my history going in. I, I felt like through cultural osmosis, I just understood this story but uh, i am pleased to say it had a lot of surprises and a lot of maybe not even surprises as much as just i was really taken with the level of depth and again stephen king's character work is just incredibly good um when you have a story that could have been told in a way that would have been a lot less effective at um sort of highlighting the inner life of this tragic figure in Carrie White that um, he's able to handle, in my opinion, masterfully. And uh, I, I, this book is also, I, I'm jealous of it because it's inc it's incredibly good for a debut novel. Um, it's incredibly well-crafted. It's an epistolary novel, which I wasn't expecting in the sense that there is just all these like in-universe novels and courtroom documentation and newspaper articles that are lifted and placed in the book um all these like secondary sources that king is writing um and and that is also like flexing as an author in, in some ways i feel and he's doing that in his his first published novel now i should say he had written three other novels at this point but none of them had been published so for what it's worth it wasn't the first novel he like completed it just was the first that got published um the other three being Rage of the Long Walk and Blaze. Yeah, Blaze. Um, regardless, it's still incredibly impressive. He's 26 years old when he writes this thing. And it's so cool to go back and see the origin because so many of his staples in his work, like the themes that he likes to explore, the character types that he likes to explore, um, so much of that is in this book. It's this like, you know, we talk about story seeds, but like this is like a career seed for him. I can see yeah. how he looked at this book 
and what was working in it and decided to explore different things, but still kind of stay in the wheelhouse a lot. Um, Because a lot of the books that he would publish were kind of in this wheelhouse. And I think it definitely is um, in in a way that I didn't realize how how much I was going to be thinking of it while reading this. But I definitely was. I was thinking of The Shining and The Stand, Pet Cemetery. Like they were they they all have those, especially uh, one thing that I'll just talk about now is like he's always got these internal struggles and these demons that these characters have and these hard environments that that usually someone's been brought up in a, in a tough environment. And some of the time it's like sort of background information, like with someone like Jack Torrance, we know he had a bad upbringing, like a rough upbringing. And then uh, it, with Carrie, we're getting like the actual upbringing itself that's creating something and like creating the demons and, and seeing like how religion is used in this and seeing. Uh, but But I also think it's interesting how the external forces that we always feel pushing the sc- on the scales in King's novels. Yeah. This one is like, it's fairly subtle because like, I don't know if he knew how hard he wanted to push into some of the more, you know what I mean? External forces being like in this, I think it's sort of the something. And in other, other stories, there's always some sort of like voice in someone's head telling them what to do or something they're doing without thinking. And it's almost like someone else is taking their body and, and like that, this one's really subtle in that way. Like there's enough of it, but it's not like named or shown yeah. in, in I, ways. I, I honestly didn't really think about the source of this sort of power or evil or whatever you want to call it that, that manifests. To me, the Carrie is both the tragic heroine and protagonist and also the villain, right? Wrapped into one character. Um, now, her mother right. is definitely a villain, too, Margaret, of course, but ultimately, Carrie is a, is a villain for everybody else in the town when it's all said and done. So, I, so much to talk about in the setup of this book that um, I think is really fascinating. Um, I feel like, with regards to spoilers, um, I I want to think most people are kind of the same as me. They kind of know the story of Carrie, even if they haven't read the book. So I'm going to operate that way, um, which means we'll be talking about things that happen towards the end of the novel, you know, throughout. Um, so I guess if if you wanted to duck out, if you're really worried about that, like, you know, you want to read it and you don't want to don't want to get spoiled. Um, I highly recommend it, not just as a bit of history uh, for Stephen King, but as I think if you were to make a ranking of like his 10 best novels, his five best novels it might be in there because not only the the history he made um, and the and the sort of launching of a legendary career, um, but it was an important novel at the time, and I think to this day um, stands up is just a really fascinating read that um, as he as he put it in there it, it continues to hurt and you know horrify people <laughs> and um, it, it has a legacy. Yeah, I mean, I, of course, always think that Stephen King is worth checking out. I feel like we've mostly seen his better side so far. We haven't we haven't tackled a lot of the other stuff that people yeah. maybe say don't don't hold up as well. But in this case, it also feels like King, like at his most precise, feels like it's 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 he doesn't. I think he has the luxury later on of being Stephen King to where he can really sort of like take his time. And this this novel, of course, takes its time, but it's very precise. It's short read. Yeah, it's got everything you want out of a Stephen King story. And honestly, in ways like it, it does feel like one of the most honed in. Yeah. The one thing you will hear some people complain about Stephen King is that he goes on and on has too many details. 
uh, overwrites his books a little bit, maybe. And, and, you know, obviously that's very subjective, but um, this, I, like you, like you said, I think this book was edited. <laughs> I think he worked with an editor. I think he um, edited himself probably because it is such a self-contained, neat story that follows a very particular blueprint that you basically see laid out in front of you from the beginning. He's not, he doesn't right. hide it. You know mm-hmm. what's going to happen from the beginning. I guess that's the other reason I'm not worried about spoilers. The book spoils what happens basically at the beginning. Other than like the fates of certain characters and how it plays out, it's more about why it plays out. This is sort of the mystery of Carrie. Like, why does this happen? Um, because we we begin with, you know, talking about the the you know the prom night that a bunch of people died at and there was a fire. Like, you hear about that very early on in the book, so... Um, a lot of it is foreshadowed and and um, laid out in front of us, and then it's all about filling it in. There, there's so many clever techniques like that that um, make for a really interesting read, and it's not as straightforward as you might expect um, by any by any stretch. It also features multiple POVs and his normal sort of semi-omniscient, um, you might call it head hopping, like he's able to just inhabit different characters at different times. Um, it works really well here. Um, much like he continues to write for the rest of his career, it's just a style that he's very, very good at. And um, even in this first book, it's interesting to see the ways in which he breaks with convention because there are things that, at least today, um, you will be warned against doing. One of them is writing more than one, honestly, or you'll hear one to three POVs is usually pretty common advice for a first-time novel. Um, and he kind of totally breaks that. The one thing that does line up, though, is the length of this novel. This is about what they recommend for a first novel. Um, it's, you know, it's less of a commitment from a publisher. Um, the book costs less to print. It's shorter. Um, it's, it's less work to read. Um, so all sorts of things. We see it even with our podcast episodes sometimes. You know, some of the most enriching conversations that I feel like we've had go up to, you know, hour 45 to two hours, but then sometimes it's not quite as approachable to to the audience sometimes. And so shorter episodes might do better. And it's, you know, it can fluctuate. It really depends on a lot of different variables. But like length, seeing somebody seeing an hour long podcast is kind of more approachable than seeing an hour and 45 or two hours. Right, and people seeing a book that, you know, can easily fit between two fingers i guess it's not this big tome that's gonna you know be a door stopper that is approachable in a way um and it works for a first novel um i have a ton of history and stuff i want to i want to get into so I, i'm ready to launch into that but it sounds like you agree recommend this book for people um it is definitely incredibly triggering much like all of stephen king's work that basically that i've ever read it deals with animal uh, abuse and violence it deals with plenty of you know abuse and violence towards children um there's lots of violence in general and discussions of sex and all sorts of things um there's there's he loves to tackle his taboos he loves getting into all the taboos that he thinks that'll like make people skin crawl whether it's actually horrifying something realistic that happens all the time um talking about young women and like their you know their sexuality and their and i'm just like he he really goes there and like that's and that's why i can totally see like you know the pta meetings where 
where like all all the parents are like, we got to make sure these books are banned. You know what I mean? These aren't books for children, obviously, but you know what I mean? Like you yeah. can see there's like obviously a brigade of people who I'm sure hate Stephen King because he talks about things that they can't stand being talked about. Even honestly, Carrie's, Carrie's mother in this story is the, the, the kind of person that I'm talking about, you know? Absolutely. So I think what you're referencing is how this is one of the most frequently banned books. Um, it is, especially in the nineties, it was like one of the most, like most banned books during the, the, a lot of the satanic panic. Um, this was viewed as, as, you know, witchcraft and evil and violent and, you know, perverting the minds of young kids. Um, and, and that reputation I think is exactly what you're touching on, but uh, let's back up a little bit and set up sort of the history of this book. So he is writing short stories at this time. He's working as a high school teacher, and he is mostly publishing stories in men's magazines, um, which, you know, basically porn magazines <laughs> or uh, nudie mags or whatever they were, you know, sort of called at the time, but they called them men's magazines, right? Um, so because of that, or maybe not because of it, but... It, he had a style that leaned into taboos and pushing the envelope. And when you think about a men's magazine as your desired publications, you know, for a lot of things, it makes sense because I, I bet they wanted stories that push taboos, right? Like that's probably like stuff that is is not, you know, <laughs> appropriate for polite company you want to put in your men's magazines. And um I think he takes that attitude here because he starts writing this story um, where he is, he said that he was challenged by readers. I can't remember wh what readers they were, but somebody said to him, um, you write about all these macho machismo guys, but you don't ever write about women. I bet you can't write about women. And he was like, well, of course I can. So he took it as a bet and he decided he was going to write this book. Um, and I'm sorry, story. And so he sits down to write it, and he ends up struggling with it a lot and feeling like he's not getting it right or he's he's struggling to understand all the characters or their motivations. And he ends up just, it's too difficult, he said. It also started getting too long, and he started feeling like, well, this is going to be too long to send it to any of the magazines I want to send it to. So he threw it away, um, and his wife, Tabitha, uh, famously rescues it from the from the trash bin, uh, reads it, and tells him, I want to know what happens next. I want to know what happens in the story. Um, so you need to finish this. And he said, well, I, you know, he told her his concerns, and she said, uh, I'll help you. So apparently she was instrumental in helping him understand uh, the woman's perspective and the, uh, the perspective of uh, these girls. I think that, that was like, I can feel that in the story. Yeah, I, I think so, too, you know, but uh, once again, here we are two dudes talking about it. So uh, I, this is one where I would absolutely love to have uh, people write in, especially women uh, who may be listeners, who may be Stephen King fans or not Stephen King fans. Maybe you've just read a few of his books or just interested in Carrie. Um, let us know what your thoughts are on his depiction of women in these books. Um, definitely fascinated to hear that. Maybe we'll read some in our next episode if we get them in in time. Um, you know, you can stay anonymous or you have your name on it either way. Just let us know. Um, but regardless, so he, he writes this book and he decides he, he's going to, he's going to make it into a, a novel and he sells it, um, for $2,500, uh, to a, a publisher and 
comes out. $2,500 was the most money he'd ever made on a story. I think at that point he said he'd made like 500 bucks uh, was the most he had made. So it was a lot more than that. Um, and he went out and bought a Pinto with that $2,500. Um, Ford Pinto, you know, famously shitty cars. Yeah. But that's what they bought, a brand new one, apparently. Um, and then, uh, yeah, later on he gets the call from the publisher, but he doesn't have a phone. So they end up having to send a telegram because he had, they had to shut off his phone. Like he shut off his phone to save money, um, to pay for, you know, pay for childcare at the time. Cause that's how poor they were. And, um, he ends up getting a telegram, which then his wife calls the school he's working at to let him know that he had a, a important message. He finds out that he's getting a $400,000 advance on the paperback he was expecting it to be more in the realm of, I think he said like twenty to forty thousand, um, because he knew that it was doing okay, but the four hundred thousand came out of the blue for him. He did not expect that, um, and it, he said he like literally fell to the ground <laughs> when he when he got that news, um, and it was life changing. And the first thing he did because he felt like he needed to buy buy a present for Tabitha was he went out to the local store and he bought her a hair dryer. <laughs> <laughs> wow what is i mean i guess maybe it was a big splurge for the time but <laughs> yeah i just think that's a pretty funny detail hair dryer um <laughs> uh, yeah so i mean that's the story of the publication and obviously it launches his career it goes on to be adapted and um that is a big part of you know what makes stephen king such a household name even early on and he's able to stop working as a as a high school teacher uh shortly after getting this this advance um, and, uh, you know, the rest is history, I guess, an ongoing history as, as I would argue, he is one of our greatest living writers, uh, especially in genre and I think undisputably in horror. So he is, he's, he's incredible. And I think it's, it's interesting to look at his career. The humble beginnings. I, I think about this all the time is like, there's a lot of people I'm sure in your industry as well, where like, you know, you have the luxury of being able to be in a situation where money isn't tight and you can focus on your art. But then there are others who somehow by miracles are able to work these like jobs and provide for a family and, and find these minutes to craft stories. And like, yeah. I think he's a he's a clear example of, of that, like artists, like just pushing through person, like persevering through all these adversities and obstacles. And yeah, it's just it's inspiring, you know? Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of like Cormac McCarthy when we, when we heard about his. Um, and also it's similar in the sense that both of them are white guys. So as much as all that other stuff was against them, you know, society wasn't holding them down right. for being white and men at least. <laughs> oh yeah, totally. They had the, at least they had white privilege going for exactly. them. They had some privilege going on for sure. Um, I did, I put the 400,000 into a, into an inflation calculator and by okay. today's standards, it's somewhere around 1.7 million. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, that's big, that's fall down money when you, when you get that news, uh, for sure. Um, incredible. So we're going to get a lot into, I think, the themes of this book and what we see going on behind the scenes. But you were talking about um, why he chose to tackle this material. And I found an interesting quote from him that explains at least his thinking. And then we can engage with it uh, on how successful or unsuccessful we might find it to be. But this is him looking back at it. He says, if the Stepford Wives concerns itself with what men want from women, then Carrie is largely about how women find their own channels of power and what men fear about women and women's sexualities. 
Writing the book in 1973, I was fully aware of what women's liberation implied for me and others of my sex. The book is, in its more adult implications, an uneasy masculine shrinking from a future of female equality. For me, Carrie White is a sadly misused teenager, an example of the sort of person whose spirit is so often broken for good in that pit of man and woman eaters that is your normal suburban high school. But she's also woman, feeling her powers for the first time, and like Samson, pulling down the temple on everyone in sight at the end of the book. Um, so yeah, it's interesting that he says it is a masculine shrinking away from female power. Um, I find that fascinating, right? He's writing at the, at this important time in liber- women's liberation and feminism, and he he says ultimately this is a this book is a I think he said it was a feminist book. It's definitely a reaction to feminism, um, and in that sense, it was controversial or at least um, notable for him to be writing it at the time. Um, he also wrote this after Rosemary's Baby had come out, but before The Exorcist. So he was at this time where. Yeah. Everything was primed, and he happened to write this book that arrived in a moment where the zeitgeist was so ready for it. And so that's one of those other factors that is like just luck, but just happens to be true that he just struck gold with this idea. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I definitely didn't think of it in that context, in the context of feminism and and like it being, of course, I thought of it in in like it being empowering to women, but also like thinking of it in the context of like historical feminism. I mean, I, I think that informs a little bit better because I had some of the things that I felt were I felt like Stephen King sort of tricks you into really buying into Carrie's story because it's like she is tortured. She has, you know, she's bullied and all of these things. But by the end of the story, you're asking the questions like, is this going too far? Does anybody deserve this kind of like yeah. this, like just massacre that's happening? And then like but then to, to reframe it, like you said, in, in the idea of like feminism breaking down a patriarchy and burning it to the ground like you know i appreciate that a lot more and and you know that's that's i i think ultimately the story whether whatever way even the first way that i described it is a power fantasy and i think it's it's rightly so of people who've been bullied women who've been put down or like women who are being i I just saw last night in soho and it's very fresh in my mind and i think there are a lot of like similar kind of things the way that women are treated and what normalcy is seen as, like how how men can treat women and over sexualize young girls, and that's shown yeah. in, in Carrie. And then ultimately seeing like all of that when given the power, like how like you said, they shrink the 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 patriarchy basically is shrinking away. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. to think of it like that. I like that. There's also a line or two um, from the opening that stuck with me and I kept thinking about and I'm talking about the forward where he was talking about it. One was um how he wished that the two girls who inspired Carrie could read this novel or their daughters, he says. Um, So in particular, it seems like this is a novel written for them, right? Like to capture the tragedy of their life and to empower them in a way that they weren't empowered. Um, And that brings me around to the other line where he says, "The, the, the story is if the world was as fair to young girls as it is hard. Um, and I kept thinking about that line, right? Like, if, if, as fair. And I'm like, so what does he mean by fair? I think he means that the power that he gives Carrie is, in his mind, 
equal to the amount of hardship that she deals with, right? Like it's if she's gonna have to go through this much hard like hardship and strife, like she should be this powerful. Um, he's saying that the world isn't that way, but he wanted to write a world that was. I would just speaking of like main characters too, like we have to talk about this in the greater Stephen King sort of multiverse thing that yeah. he has or whatever. And like it's clearly some sort of shine ability early on before I'm, I'm sure that he even wanted to like articulate what it was. Yeah. But also probably the most powerful user that we've seen of any sort of like supernatural abilities, especially as far as main characters are concerned. That that we've seen. <laughs> I don't know because he's written a lot of books and, and I'm sure he's re- returned. In. And, and also it seems like everybody with, with these sort of mental abilities, shining abilities, it kind of manifests in a different way. Maybe they have certain things that they're better at. Um, yeah. Yeah, Carrie's definitely extremely powerful. So I uh, totally agree. Um, okay, so a couple other things before we get into it. Uh, until we get into the actual plot. But Ramsey Campbell um, says that the book itself shook the horror field up like a bomb. Um, With millions of copies sold today, Carrie also launched the career of one of the world's best-selling novelists. It is notable as a marker for what is to come, the career of the most influential horror novelist of his or perhaps any generation. I also read that a young Sarah Pinborough um, read Carrie when she was 10 or 11 years old. Um, Now, she is a well-known horror writer, um, working today, um, who I think has some adaptations, so she might even be someone who's on our radar. Um, and then I, I can't remember the other one, but there was another uh, woman, uh, horror writer, who was recounting a very similar story about reading Carrie when she was like 11 years old. So apparently a lot of these young, young girls get their hands on this book and read it, and t- she was talking about how the horror of puberty was was so in like so was looming like she knew it was coming but she was she was afraid of it she didn't know she didn't know much about it and then she's reading this book and it just makes this impression on her right and she goes on to become a you know famous horror writer so i think it's also interesting to think about the effect this book has and on young readers um because like you said this book isn't for children but much like we know with it um Seems like young young readers love this stuff. <laughs> I know that a, a lot of the people I knew in high school and middle school and even going back to elementary school would talk about reading Stephen King novels. They loved it. It was taboo. It was adult. And people ate it up. Yeah. I mean, if you want to feel like a grown up when you're like 11 years old, you read a <laughs> Stephen King novel. You know what I mean? And you, you deal with the terrifying moments as well as like the interesting taboos that you won't hear adults talk to you about. Nothing we could read today will ever be as terrifying as something that you would read at that age when your mind is just so open to the possibilities and you don't even know, like, you don't know what's possible in life at all when you're that age, right? So you're reading this stuff and your mind's blowing and you're you're terrified. So that's why so many people, I think, have these, like, deeply grained, ingrained fears associated with Stephen King's work because they read him young. Um, I did not have that experience, unfortunately, but... Um, I read other horror, but not Stephen King. And so I, I get it. But like, yeah, most of his stuff I've read as an adult. And I kind of wish I could know what it would have been like to read this when I was that age. I, I didn't read Stephen King at a young age necessarily, but I was affected by his stories. Like I sure. saw some of the movies and stuff, yeah. which I'm sure you did as well. And that was our that was sort of my way of being like, oh, shit, Stephen King stuff yeah. is serious and adult and taboo. Well, and, and being being my mother's favorite author, I've always been aware of him. Right. And we, yeah. we've watched some of the TV shit. Now, sometimes it was like made for TV and stuff, you know, but we've always watched yeah. things like I saw The Shining when I was young. So, 
Oh, and real quick, uh, I also listened to the audiobook for some of this, and uh, it is narrated by Sissy Spacek, who is the uh, who's Carrie in the De Palma adaptation. <laughs> so she reads yeah. the book, which is really cool. So, um, so cool. You know, shout out to her. That was awesome. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to read a little plot here. In the main town of Chamberlain, Carrietta Carrie White is a 16-year-old who is the target of ridicule for her frumpy appearance and unusual religious beliefs, instilled by her despotic mother, Margaret. One day, Carrie has her first period while showering in the girls' locker room. Carrie is terrified, having no understanding of menstruation, as her mother never told her about it. While Carrie believes she is dying, her classmates, led by a wealthy, popular girl named Chris Harginson, insult her and throw tampons and sanitary napkins at her. The gym teacher, Rita Disjardin, helps Carrie clean up and tries to explain. On the way home, Carrie practices her unusual ability to control objects from a distance. The only time she recalls using this power was when she was three years old and caused stones to fall from the sky by her house. Once Carrie gets home, Margaret accuses Carrie of sin and locks her in a closet so that she may pray. The the world that was set up around is the thing that I was most surprised about. I think, like I said, like you mentioned, like I felt like I knew the story of Carrie, but as it was building up and like I was starting to immediately build empathy for this character, like uh, immediately. I mean, how can you not? Yeah. Yeah. And um, just horrific bullying. Yeah. The amount, the amount that we get early on and how much, how close we are to Carrie, which isn't the case through the whole story. We start to get farther and farther from her, which I think is a cool technique when she sort of starts to be farther and farther from who we see early on. Well, even, even the opening is, a lot of it is told from Sue and um, Disjardin's perspectives too, right? Like we, we get, which is it is also notable, right? There's three three women um, are, are sort of the main POVs we get early. But um, yeah, I mean, we get, he often will like circle around to the same event and tell it from multiple perspectives which is something I've always found was really cool and something that I, I've i tried to do in some of my longer work. Um, and I just think it's really neat, right? Like, and it's it's a fun little device you can do to, to show the same event from different angles. Right. And quickly, I was really taken with, like you said, the, the format in which he's telling the story because we are getting these, like, right away we're getting stories from people who, I think it's literally said, like, someone who survived the prom night or something. Oh, it's yeah, like yeah. written a story and we're getting like their an excerpt from their book. And Multiple getting... people have written books, it seems like, about, about this event. Um, and there was some sort of investigation, a commission, the White Commission, I think it was called, that, that was apparently carried out. And so we, we start hearing these references to all these things and you start getting this, you're like, oh shit, this is like some sort of big deal thing happens here. Right. And uh, the best part about that is that rather than getting like these like removed text we're getting like people's perspective we're seeing people bullying her maybe that are writing a story later on and you're like wait a minute so you're like kind of skewing this information like you might be like adding your own perspective to it to make yourself look better well sue sue you're you're talking about in particular is the character who has written a novel later i think her the name's called the name of the novel is like my name is sue or something like that right um and um it's it's her perspective on this um now i do think the story we get is the truth i think it's it's sort of the all we're getting the true story regardless of all these other materials because there may be even like a section where like sue says something and the narrator will say like but that we know that wasn't true or something like that something you know what i mean where it's like but less like person to person right like that sounds like a person talking to you this is like um semi-omniscient it's 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 a very particular stephen kingism where he's just like it's not god but it could be it's the narrating god 
that tells you, but this is the actual truth. Which opens up another can of worms right there with God. So yeah. to talk about how religion is handled and like my own religious experience, I'm thinking, you know, I've seen my family wasn't this religious and people around me typically weren't. Uh, Stephen King mentioned Methodist uh, in his like, that's how he was raised. And but he did like have an encounter with someone who was like very hyper. Yeah. Um, I think I think that was the whoever had the, the seizures. I think that was her. Yeah, she was like extremely religious. And he. um yeah, he. She always, I think, would wear what he called like funny clothes, or people perceived as funny clothes. But having encountered people like that in my life, and like having, you know, clearly no longer being religious in any way, um, it's I don't, to to weave that into the story. I've talked about other stories where religion plays a part. I think people who who have participated in that religion or are currently still they they're there's another layer in that story for them where like they've they've seen someone like this or they experience something like this and uh carrie like pushing back against some of the stuff and the way that her mother like tortures her with the religion sometimes and you can see like the hypocrisy in it and it's it's just like brutal yeah i mean he even yeah he even mentions about how his the father was like someone who would be reading Bible verses like one minute and then be talking about how he gunned down a communist the next or something like that. There's like some detail yeah. about that. And I'm like, that totally holds true for today. Um, so one thing that uh, is from a storytelling perspective that stands out to me is I was talking about how like sort of tightly plotted this book is. Um, and one of the reasons it is, is um, the opening of this novel perfectly mirrors what happens at the end of it. Um, it is it is a sort of appetizer for the main course to follow. It sets up all the major themes. It sets up what's going to happen. Um, everything you really need to know about the book is right there in the opening. Um, and so it, the the book had a inevitable sense to it as I read it. It was like I was being propelled towards this horrible event. I knew, full, fully knew was coming. The book tells you it's coming. And you are just drawn to it in a way that just drives you forward. Like this book read so fast. I, I was really, I was really taken with it, just how quickly and how into it I was. Um, and, you know, that means it's, it's paced really well, plotted well. Everything about it worked, just worked really well in that sense. Um, one note I had was that the, the stones falling on the house is a detail we've heard recently because um, we just covered a bonus episode where we talked about uh, The Haunting, which is an adaptation of The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, a novel we covered earlier this year, um, which includes details about a young Eleanor summoning stones to fall on her house. Um, I don't... Now, that book came out before this one. Um, yep. So King also said that he loves Shirley Jackson and absolutely loves one, her. One stuff. of his favorite novels. Had he read it at the time he wrote, he wrote this, was this a nod to her? I don't know. He had mentioned that he read a news article about a poltergeist or something. And supposedly that was sort of the inspiration for Carrie. Um, and it included a young girl who lived in the house or something. But I don't know. I could see there being a literary influence there too. And it's interesting to think that maybe Shirley Jackson's, uh, that particular detail may have seeped into Stephen King's mind and come out and carry. I just thought it was notable, right? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all. It's such an odd detail, right? Like raining stones. I don't know if that was like a bigger thing back in the day, but like I had never heard of that until both these no. backs, these books back to back talked about it, basically. Uh, very interesting. So the other thing that I think is sort of the, the elephant in the room we should talk about, the taboo 
of menstruation and mm -hmm. talking about it like or seemingly yeah like the F, especially of the time well i mean it, it, it's something that like i feel like as a society we're trying to be better about but still like the a lot of attitudes by from men is just like you don't talk about it i don't want to hear about it i don't want to even think about it like a lot of men have this sort of like revulsion and and um are unwilling to even really think about it very much um, I know I'm speaking broadly here, but I'm just saying like general attitudes. So you write this book that is all about menstruation and th and like that is immediately a huge taboo. And he starts off with a scene that is all about it. Right. And like, you know, they're throwing these like tampons and sanitary napkins and um, bullying her and when, you know, plug it up phrase and like stuff like that, that is just so taboo. Um, it, it, it shows me an author who is willing to go there in a way that like Stephen King continues to do throughout his career. Like he is always willing to go there and whether or not you want to go along for the ride, I think is going to be whether or not you're a fan, right? Like, cause some people he'll, he's going to go somewhere that you don't want to follow and you might go, you know what? This is not for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. but you know what I mean? Like he, he's going to push the envelope over and over and over again. Sometimes he'll do it in ways that are a little clumsy or maybe ill-conceived or, or, you know, poorly thought out. Um, but most of the time he, I think he handles it pretty well. He does it pretty carefully. And, um, I think this is largely the case here. Yeah, I mean, it's a powerful scene, too, because Carrie hadn't been talked to, which is another thing to talk about with the mother. And she hadn't been talked to about menstruation or like any sort of cycles or anything like that that was eventually on the horizon with puberty. And she was like a late bloomer as well. So she was like 17 when all this is happening. Yeah. Um, everyone's making fun of her because it's been it's normal for them at this point. They're throwing sanitary objects at her. She's having the worst day of her life. Then she goes home and her mom tells her that she's sinning and locks her in a closet and like makes her pray with all this like crazy religious shit all around her and stuff. There's like an image of like the devil in devil there or, or something. something. She yeah. keeps looking at and like Jesus and like all this stuff. And yeah, she's in this closet and it's just horrifying. And I, I have not seen the De Palma movie. I don't remember this part, but I'm sure it's going to be harrowing. So I'm looking forward to that, I guess. <laughs> um, but th that just also reminds me of like a theme that I think is so evident here that I realized has been so evident in many of the other King novels that we've read is the ways that adults fail children, right? Like we see adults failing Carrie all over the place, including uh, Mrs. Jordan, who fails to she slaps her, in she the face. slaps her and is like mad at her at first. And then she realizes eventually what's going on. Um, but it's kind of too late. Like the damage has been done and that's kind of like the, the thing, right? Like, and even like a well-meaning Sue joins in and a lot, and the, both of those characters feel a lot of shame and, and are trying to sort of atone for that throughout the rest of the book. Um, and I think it's really interesting because those two characters I think are the closest, I would say to the usual sort of Stephen King insert character that we tend to get. Think about this Jordan, right? She is a young teacher. And who has witnessed something and maybe regrets the way she handled it. Um, even from a little bit of substituting that I did um, when I was uh, younger. I, did, I was a substitute teacher for a while in Jacksonville, Florida. And I went around to different different classes. And I would only be there for a day. So you don't know these kids. And you don't know their histories. And you don't know the dynamics, right, of like who feels what about who. Which I think helps in these situations. But there were times I remember where there were, where there were things that I later on was thinking about. Oh, I probably should have handled that a little bit differently. 
Uh, maybe I should have stopped this thing from happening or said something to, you know, it's just so hard in the moment. Um, and when you're the, when you're the adult present in the room, um, it's a lot of pressure. And, and, you know, in hindsight, it's 2020, you look back and you go, this is what I clearly I should have done. Um, and nothing like super crazy like this, but like, there's just little things, right. Where you think about it later and you're like, oh, maybe I should have done something a little different there. This was an opportunity for a teaching moment and, and I missed it. Um, and you have regrets and I can see, uh, a teacher like Stephen King writing that into this book, right? Like he's writing that in through, through this Jordan. And I think Sue is a lot of what he felt as a young, fairly popular kid throughout school. Who's writing these like humorous newspapers and everybody enjoys. He's not necessarily an athlete, but it seems like he was fairly popular, but I'm sure he was very aware of all these like other kids who were getting bullied and, he felt empathy towards them, even though he wasn't necessarily like them in some ways. And um, so he he reminds me a lot of Sue in that sense of like she's popular, but she doesn't necessarily embrace the idea of being the popular girl. And in fact, she has like a lot of anxiety about what that looks like. And she can sort of picture her life playing out in a certain way. She doesn't want it to play out. Um, so I don't know. I, I was reading a lot into that as being like a Stephen King um, sort of uh talking about his own feelings yeah i mean and that's what i was picking up with with stuff that i talked about early on in the episode where like i I felt similar things throughout school like you know like i i was never bullying anyone but it wasn't i wasn't stopping it you know what i mean i can specifically remember times and you're just like in hindsight you're like kids like he had this thing where and you know taking responsibility away from it like you're a kid or whatever he tried to say like you know it's hard to do anything when you're 14 like to stand up in any way and it is but at the same time there are kids who do stand up you know what i mean but the, you, you just regret some of those moments and you think about that. And I, I don't know. I think that that's pretty, pretty much so. either you've been bullied or seen someone bullied in your life. And that's why this story is so affecting because like if anyone does something along this path, you know, maybe it changes the trajectory of the ending here. I absolutely feel that way. I absolutely have regrets about how I behaved in different stages in my life. It's not to say I was a bully. In fact, I was bullied. Um, I was telling the story recently about how just being a reader who, who read books not assigned was enough to get you bullied in, in the Florida public school system <laughs> that I was in. For sure. Um, yeah, for and sure. I remember getting bullied constantly for reading like Wheel of Time and like other things like people like constantly asking me what you read and like just like saying shit about it. But like I was, you know, a pretty big guy even then. So I tended to not get not get it too bad. Um, but I do have regrets about, like you said, like not standing up for, you know, for people um, you know, and even things that I may have said to people, like uh, there, there are things that I regret in that sense. And, and, and part of that is when you're that young, you don't necessarily, like, you don't know who you are yet. You're trying to find an identity and you're, you're in many ways, you're kind of trying on different hats and you're trying on different personalities and you're trying on different ways of behaving that you've seen so you're looking around, you're seeing people, and you're figuring out who you want to emulate, who you, who who um, who your friends are, and what you see them do. And sometimes you might be friends with someone who's maybe not the greatest <laughs> when it comes to certain things, right? And so you start to try that behavior, and you go, "Oh, maybe I'll try that and see how see how it feels." And maybe it takes you doing something a few times before you go, "You know what? I felt shitty about that. I regret it, and I'm not going to do it anymore." And I definitely had moments like that, but that doesn't change the fact that I did some of those things. Um, again, nothing crazy like this, but like, yeah, we all, I think a lot of people have stories like that and it, it's, it's, it's worthwhile, I think, to reflect on them. But um, he also makes a really interesting point within this book about how like 
high school feels so important to us when we're in it, but like after you get out of it, like you, it's kind of like not even like I don't, I almost never think about high school anymore. Like yes, it's, yeah, it doesn't matter at this point. It was so important at the time. It doesn't matter as an adult. It's like, so important, so dramatic. Everything's everything's yeah. way over the top, and it's the end of the world. But to circle back to the failure of these adults, right? To they they fail Carrie, and the the first primary failure is her is her parent, it's her mother, and um, that is something that we see over and over again in Stephen King's work. I'm mean, just thinking of all the kids in it, right? So many of them have problems at home, and the way that that affects them changes them forever. Um, and, and that's a lot of his work too. Is like ha- people's past just like shaping the people that they will become, and so often it's inescapable. And it dooms them, you know, like so many of his children and young characters in his books can't ever escape their upbringing. And and they're they're sort of tragic figures in that way. And Carrie is certainly that. I mean, her mother is so fundamentalist and so against anything that could be viewed as sex in any way that she 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 finds showers to be sinful. They only have a bathtub because showers are sinful. Like it's this level of like. It's it's like someone who has a severe mental illness, and then you combine that with fundamentalist belief, and it it has gone to an extreme. We get the perspective of her trauma at some point too, and like clearly, like the fundamentalist part came first, but then also like this guy raped her. I think. Yeah, it was, seemed like it was like a mari- marital rape, um, and yeah. that's what uh, Carrie was sort of a child of because she didn't. She was so extreme on that, like she didn't even want to have sex once married. Because she found sex to be sinful no matter what. So, I mean, that's that's the level we're talking about here. Um, so, okay, let me read a little bit more plot here. Disjardin reprimands the girls who bullied Carrie and punishes them with a week's detention, with the penalty for skipping being suspension and exclusion from the prom. This punishment is given to Chris when she defiantly leaves. After an unsuccessful bid to get her privileges reinstated through her influential father... Chris decides to exact revenge on Carrie. Sue Snell, another popular girl who tormented Carrie in the locker room, feels shame for her previous behavior and convinces her boyfriend Tommy Ross to invite Carrie to prom instead. Carrie is suspicious but accepts his offer and begins sewing herself a prom dress. Meanwhile, Chris persuades her boyfriend Billy Nolan and his friends to gather two buckets of pig's blood as she prepares a measure to rig the prom queen election in Carrie's favor. Okay, so this is all. This is the middle. This is the setup. Um, let's talk about some of these characters, right? Um, Chris, this <laughs> Chris and Billy. I mean, they're a pair, right? Um, I just, I just kept thinking, like, who, who are these people that Stephen King grew up with? Because we keep seeing characters like Billy show up over and over again. He's a Henry Bowers type. Like he is, like he is just these these like they're they're hateful, they're ignorant, they're vile, they're a human being who is a product of their environment in some ways. Yet the product that they have become is just way more dangerous than you expect, way more twisted than you expect. Um, there's and he has these little details that usually involve harming animals which is a sign of like a serial killer. So it's like he grew up with some serial killers. I don't know. <laughs> but like um, he has this detail about Billy driving his car around and running over strays. Um, it's just like this throwaway detail. And you're like, okay, so you get the sense that this guy is a sociopath. 
And um, man, do you see this character sh- show up again and again in King's work? And uh, he, here he is, and he the 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 pig scene, harrowing. Him and yeah. these him and his friends get get drugged up, and they go and they take a sledgehammer and they kill several pigs and you know bleed them and. Um, just the way King describes it is just like, yeah, he goes for it and it is dark. Yeah. These psychopaths that, that keep showing up they like you said, they're ignorant, they are irredeemable. And then they like, they, then something triggers them in the story to go, go further and further and further. And, um, yeah, this, this scene was like com- so rough, like, and I kind of knew that something like this was coming because of course, like the blood had to come from somewhere. Yeah. And like, you're like, okay, I, so I thought they just like bought it. Like, I never knew where the blood came from. Like, I knew blood was going to come from somewhere. I did not think they went and like harvested it fresh from, from some farmer who was like at a funeral for his mother and they went and killed his hogs. And like, yeah, I couldn't help but think of Henry Bowers too, though. Like Henry Bowers oh, was for so sure. much in my mind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he, this guy, this, 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 uh, what's his name? Billy. He's he kind of feels like a like a rough draft of a Henry Bowers <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and that that's that's dismissive. He actually is a, you know a very interesting character in his own right. Um, but I don't know. There's a certain also like he was like slicking his hair back. He kind of seems like a like a gearhead. He loves his car, and he's got this attitude. And he reminds me of like the movie Grease, but like <laughs> the dark side of that. And I'm like, I just get the feeling that these are the kinds of guys that Stephen King was bullied by or at least knew and witnessed doing a lot of heinous shit in, in Maine in the, you know, whatever year he was <laughs> in school. Um, because we see a character like this show up in The Stand. Um, you know, there's, just, there's just all these, again, again and again, these these just hateful, hateful guys. Yeah, so let's talk about Sue, like, sort of just telling her boyfriend to invite Carrie to prom. And- yeah, Tommy. Poor, poor, sweet Tommy. That was a redemption for her, she thought, if she gave her boyfriend away or something like that. And, like, I, I know that she wanted her to feel special, right? Yeah. Well, and she's very aware that Tommy is the heartthrob of the school. He is the popular guy that all the girls want to be with. Um, and she knows that Carrie in particular has a crush on him. And she, yeah, in sort of an interesting way, manipulates Tommy into doing this thing. Um, and Tommy, Tommy... He is, he seems genuine, right? Like, he seems like he's, he maybe doesn't fully understand potential pitfalls in this plan. Well, he's young, too, you know? We get the perspective that, like, he loves Sue, but then, like, throughout this experience with with Carrie, he also loves Carrie. It seems like he really likes her, you know? I've seen people say that it's more like as a friend, but I, I don't know. I thought there was definitely, like, an underlying, like, he finds her beautiful. He talks about that a lot, so... You know, there is definitely some some troubling linking between like people's physical appearance and their worth. And like now that he finds her beautiful, that seems to give her value in a way that like when she was more frumpy, she didn't have. I I don't know. Um, But again, 70s. um, So there's there's some of that for sure. Oh, the other thing there's now this mostly comes from Billy, who we get is is clearly a huge racist. But we get some really uh, (laughs) just throwaway racism that is like oh yeah quite harsh minstrel characters are referenced like many times for for almost no reason other yeah. than to to bring it up which yeah. is like a very rare racist caricature blackface sort of thing that that was yeah. going on and and um but just like the, even like when she's covered in blood she like opens her eyes and they said that she looked like 
a, a de- like a depiction of a minstrel character because like she was just like her eyes and she was covered in so- a different color yeah. than her own skin and it's like why I, I don't know it's felt like almost like he wanted to touch on taboos but at the same time it seems also offensive like so i I think now i wasn't alive in this era but it it just seems to me that like white well-meaning liberals and their attitudes toward racism is just evolved so much over time and at this time it was like i think stephen king was aware it was bad but like he saw it everywhere and so he wanted his characters to represent that and then it's also a taboo that he can dance around because he knows that readers will also have a reaction to it. And he wanted to go there. So I, I think that's what all it is, right? Like, I don't think he's thinking about the harm that this could do. He's just thinking about, like, taboo. And then he's also thinking about white readers, I think, more primarily. Um, he assumed that was who's going to be reading his books at the time, at least. It's pretty unfortunate, too, because, like, when I see it now, like, it makes me cr- in a book that I otherwise really enjoy. And there, are, you know, there are some 70s things that don't necessarily hold up perfectly. But the the that specific stuff, like, kind of is, is where I would be like, if I was to recommend this to somebody, I would definitely let them know that this stuff is in there before, you know, giving my wholehearted recommendation, obviously. Yeah. And, and that's true for a lot of his work um, in general, but especially his early work, it seems like it's something that he's had a journey with throughout his career and where he's at now. If you feel like he's done enough, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't read enough of his books and I'm certainly not the person to to really comment on it. It's definitely a, a criticism that I have seen leveled at him a lot. Um, take that for what you may, I guess. Um, so there's also this narrative going on in the other materials right the, the epistolary materials that is the the sort of looking back at this big event and trying to figure out what happened and we're getting it from a newspaper we're getting it from a, a court case we're getting it from multiple books people have written and we're getting it from like talking about the government and the per i think the purpose of all of this is to sell us on an unbelievable event being believable in the same way that we talked about in haunting of hill house how there's a paranormal investigator investigating this house to see if it's haunted and then being able to talk about the nature of hauntings we get all this stuff that gets to talk about the quote-unquote science behind telekinesis and 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 the inks the reach of the reaction is big enough to where we can start to believe it, right? Like, we're like, well, I guess that would happen if if, if there was some sort of crazy fire in a small town and all this The stuff. greater community would start to try to figure it out and the government would try to cover it up and it's unexplainable. Is it replicatable? Is it is it something genetic and all that yeah. kind of stuff? Well, and also, like, how a lot of people don't believe it and talking about the way that the public, you know, seem to, like, want to scapegoat and to think that other things were at play and... All of that sells you on like, well, maybe something like this has happened and we just didn't know about it, you know, which it, it, that little bit, it's that little wedge that he's driving into your um, disbelief that can be so important for you to buy into a story like this. And when you were talking about Haunting of Hill House, you're talking specifically about the novel because the yeah. obviously the adaptation doesn't deal with the investigation in that way necessarily. And the haunting, which we just watched, which is For what a bonus was, episode. Was fresh, freshest in my mind. Yeah, that's that's our bonus episode uh, this last month uh, over on Patreon. Okay, so the prom initially goes well for Carrie. Tommy's friends are welcoming, and Tommy himself finds that he is attracted to Carrie. Chris's plan to rig the election is successful, and Carrie and Tommy are elected prom queen and king. However, at the moment of the coronation, Chris, from outside, dumps the pig's blood onto Carrie and Tommy's heads. 
Tommy is knocked unconscious by one of the buckets and dies due to serious blood loss. The sight of Carrie drenched in blood invokes laughter from the audience. Carrie leaves the building humiliated. Outside, Carrie decides to enact vengeance on her tormentors. Using her powers, she seals the gym, activates the sprinkler system, inadvertently electrocutes many of her classmates, and causes a fire that eventually ignites the school's fuel tanks, causing a massive explosion that destroys the building full of students. Carrie, in an overwhelming fit of rage, thwarts any incoming effort to fight the fire by opening the hydrants within the school's vicinity, then destroys gas stations and cuts power lines on her way home. Carrie returns home to confront Margaret, who believes Carrie has been possessed by Satan and must be killed. She stabs Carrie in the shoulder with a kitchen knife, but Carrie kills her by mentally stopping her heart. Mortally wounded, Carrie makes her way to the roadhouse where she was conceived. She sees Chris and Billy leaving. Billy attempts to run Carrie over, but she mentally takes control of his car and sends it racing into a wall, killing both Billy and Chris. Sue finds Carrie collapsed in the parking lot, bleeding out from the knife wound. Carrie had believed that Sue and Tommy had set her up for a prank, but realizes that Sue is innocent and has never felt real animosity towards her. Carrie dies crying out for her mother. Um, there is a little bit more that happens in the sort of meta-narrative, but um, I think that's where like the main story ends. Um, so let's talk about Prom Night, um, this event that I was like somewhat aware of. Um, but, and this is another clear example of the thing I was talking about where we get the same event told through multiple lenses, right? Through multiple POVs, which I think is really cool, especially for a very important event like this. And there was a lot of surprises here. As much as I kind of knew what was going to happen, there was a lot of things I didn't expect. I realized that I didn't remember what, I remember the pig's blood and I don't remember how she reacts to the pig's blood. Yeah. Cause she initially runs out and then, um, she traps them inside and I'll be no- I'll be interested to note if this is the same in the movie, but I thought it was notable that she actually doesn't want, she's not trying to kill them. She traps them inside and then she turns on the sprinkler system because she wants to ruin their clothes. She's like, let them all have their clothes ruined because they ruined my clothes. They ruined my dress. And then she happens to electrocute some people by setting off all of those sort of like band equipment. Um, and then that sort of like, she then realizes that she, that's what she actually wants. So it's not to say that she doesn't want that, but it, it, it kind of happens accidentally at first, which I th- is a really clever way to do it, to set up this character who I wasn't really sure if she, if she just immediately turned into a cold blooded killer or started slaughtering people, which is kind of what I thought was going to happen. I would have rebelled a little bit against it. This leads me to a greater conversation that I kind of set up earlier, but is there a se- is there a side of Carrie that wanted to do all these other things and sort of like get their clothes wet. And like, was there a side of her that was like persuading her to do these things in a darker sense and then realize it could make her spiral because she very quickly, you know, people start getting electrocuted and all this other stuff. And then that's sort of making her snap at the same time. Like I said, there are like voices that talk to her and say like this and that, and she disagrees with them at different times in her mind. And like, you can take that to be an outside source, but you could also take that to be, like the demon on her shoulder, like her, like in the various, like sort of just your, your conscience could be that. Exactly. And that I, I do like that ambiguity because it tends to be the case too. in a lot of st- Stephen King stories with these monsters and the way that they eventually they sort of like reveal themselves in these stories, but this one doesn't. And yeah. I wonder if Carrie would be 
if Carrie is becoming one of these beings, maybe potentially if Carrie like has splintered, oh. become this. And then we sort of get us like what we'll talk about in a little bit is potential resurrection of some kind. Um, maybe and yeah. like and like uh, a continuing of the story per se. But yeah, I don't know. That's sort of the larger stuff that I was thinking about. But to get to get smaller with it. Um, yeah, overall, this it was horrifying, right? Like she locks them in. People are getting electrocuted in the way that he describes it. Like their backs are breaking out backwards and doing things unnatural and it's like it's disgusting and and uh how unfortunate you mentioned like poor tommy before but like yeah. a bucket like hits it like no matter Kills what him. happened this night no matter what happened even if carrie ran away and nothing else happened he got hit with a bucket and died well and you know that that really highlights just how horrific a action billy and chris took together right like this is exactly. this goes well beyond school schoolyard bullying i guess if you want to like downplay and they they were knew that they were confronting assault like just by dumping this on them and that they were facing jail time and yeah this could be jail time they were thinking about you know fingerprints stuff like that but it also shows like a lack of not only a lack of caring but a lack of like understanding the ramifications of your actions like they they don't realize that they could kill somebody in this moment and one thing i noticed uh is that a lot of the he would talk about these books that would raise doubt and like people would raise doubt about you know first off would would a character would a person like sue actually have enough empathy to feel sorry for carrie in this moment um and then also how 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 much did they plan this out or was it just spur of the moment um would they have premeditated this in this way and what i thought was funny is that it it, all of this came back around to adults underestimating children right like underestimating their capacity for evil and violence under underestimating their capacity for empathy and understanding um, just under, underestimating children in general. And I think that's a theme, again, that we see come up through King's work all, over and over again. So one thing I want to touch on here um, that I, I've been sort of sitting on that I think is a pretty cool detail um, that I, I read this somewhere and I was like, this uh, this makes so much sense. He was inverting a particular fairy tale in this story. And once I heard that, I couldn't stop seeing it. Really? Can you Can you guess which one it was? No, I did not. I can't think of a fairy tale. But all right, let me give you a hint. It's one we've covered. Yeah. <laughs> one we've covered, huh? I guess Cinderella. Yes. Okay. Cinderella, and the more you think about it, the more it makes sense. Okay, so it is about attending a ball that you shouldn't be at, above your station, um, having this this wonderful night that ends at the stroke of midnight, where you know you revert back to your normal self. Um, and, and, and you have to run away. <laughs> uh, and in here, uh, instead she, uh, wreaks havoc on everybody who has kept her down, held her down, kept her out of this place. Um, and it's, it's like, it's like Cinderella's revenge. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can see and, that. Yeah. Uh, cool. I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting as an, it, it, thinking of it as an inversion of the Cinderella fairy tale, uh, I thought was fascinating and also was insight to me and how he crafted this this entire book. So I wanted to talk about like the revenge that she wreaks as well on her mother and like how that buildup was, you know, very satisfying because this was like probably the character that deserved this the most potentially, if you can, (laughs) if you could say that. But, um, I love the moment. So of course she's like waiting. Carrie goes home to kill Margaret. Margaret's been waiting, wants to kill Carrie. And Carrie's like, what the fuck? My mom wants to kill me. Even though she was coming to kill her. (laughs) And the way that she kills her by like slowing her heart and stopping it. And I love that like her mother is like 
calling to God, saying all these prayers and all this stuff, and she's finally going to send her to see her God and all these things she's always wanted. Yeah. And then she's like, God's will or something like that. And then Carrie's like, no, my will. And like that's like when she kills her. And yeah, it just seems like she's turned into something that's like unrecognizable from, from the Carrie we saw early on. No longer meek in any way, you know? Yeah, it's an assertion of, of power. It's an assertion of autonomy against control. Um, there's so many things that again, become recurring themes in his work, and, and we see them here. Uh, so all this reminds me, and I want to circle back to it before we get too far away from it. And this is just going to be a, an opinion. I want to ask your opinion, and then I'll give mine, <laughs> as I am I want to do. <laughs> do you think that kids today would react in this way? In uh, in Carrie's way? To, car- to carry. Oh, I see. The sort of eternally bullied kid yeah it's an interesting question right like um bullying is a different uh bag today right like bullying back in the day was in somebody's face like um and now it's like sort of more virtual and sort of more like it's more subtle social media bullying's real bad on social media it's still vicious though like oh potentially more you know more vicious potentially and you can't escape it and whereas like when you went home before bullying would be left at school potentially and you know within your friends groups there might have been some of yeah. that but unless you had a bigger bully waiting at home like so many Stephen King characters do and pe- real people yeah like and actual real people, people. Yeah. yeah absolutely um you know and and the other thing that I couldn't help but think about too is like the state of the world and specifically America with mental illness and people just like going into schools and and you know, killing people and all this other sort of stuff that's gone on. I couldn't help but think about that in terms of this sort of story. And I don't know, kids, I think kids today are savvy and have like had to deal with things that we could never imagine as kids having to go through as kids. And then I might be misremembering this, but I think one of his other early novels that I listed rage that he had written before this is about a school shooter. Um, so, and, and I think it's out of print because of it's like, apparently doesn't necessarily handle it in the best way. So right. um, this is something that was on his mind, right? And I think it is notable. This is a, this is violence against the school. Um, and it's, it is kind of violence uh, from a child against her bullies. And we've heard so many school shooters say that that was, or it seems like, you know, that that was like a lot of what made them do the things they do. Um, and yeah, I think he's touching on uh, sort of a raw nerve there that, you know, for better or for worse, a lot of people are going to identify with. Um, I think that's another reason why people wanted to ban this book. Yeah, so what were your thoughts on that? Like, how do you think kids would react today? Yeah, I don't know. And, and you know, it's, um, it. I think it's an interesting subject, right? And he, you could even debate at the time, is this accurate to how people would behave? Um, I He does enough to sell me on it to where I'm an, I can believe it. And he says, essentially, people were laughing because they didn't know, like, like I think even the, someone said, like, it was either cry or laugh, and so I decided to laugh or something. Like, um, and and I can see that attitude. I, I want to think that the kids of today, there's just more knowledge out there. Like you said, awareness of mental health, awareness of people's experiences. And I, I, I see a lot of encouraging things that makes me want to think that this wouldn't go down this way. But I'm also not naive enough to think that there aren't still plenty of people who would delight in the bullying, even to this extent, and like totally destroying somebody because we've, you know, there are news stories about this kind of shit happening. So it does still happen. I just don't know if there's like there was a a a, a deliberate choice by King to make the entire school guilty in a way 
to where when Carrie reacts against everybody, um, it is still tragic, but you kind of understand it. Whereas you'd feel a lot differently if um, it was really truly just a few few kids here or there. It wasn't like everyone was laughing at her. So Chris and Billy, you know, fucking terrible. And they are like sexually excited by what, they, what they've done. They have like a really messed up <laughs> sex scene after this where they're violent towards each other. Um, Billy is like, he's just like fucking terrible. And, but like Chris is just as terrible and she keeps like finding ways to like assert the fact that she's still t- just as terrible in, in, in a lot of ways, but there's still like certain power that he has. And I don't know, maybe that's just King, uh, you know, being a man. I don't know. It, it seems like Billy is ultimately in control or thinks he is at least. I don't know. He's definitely the muscle of the group, I guess. He's like the one who does the most physical He's also harm. older, I think. Too. He's, He's older. He's got the car. Um, anyway, yeah, and they try and he tries to run her over and uh, gets uh, gets mentally flipped, I guess, <laughs> or run into a wall, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Basically, hit like an invisible wall. He like loses control of the vehicle because she starts controlling it. Yeah, yeah. They die there. Um, so that's the revenge. And we were talking about like, is this book a like sort of fuck yeah revenge? No, in my opinion, it's not. Um, even it, even as much as you might want to say it's empowering, um, it's, and it is. This is ultimately a revenge tragedy. Um, I think it's, and, and tragedy is very important here, right? Like it is people who don't deserve it die. Lots of people who don't deserve it die. Um, Carrie herself ends up dying, um, you know, kills her own mother who, you know, she probably did deserve it. But like, it's tragic, right? And um, so you can't, you, you can't just feel like, yeah, I'm so, I, I, you know, I love Carrie having this moment of fuck yeah, like at the end, like he doesn't allow you to feel that really. Um, so I think that's right. important to know. Definitely, yeah. Like I said, he kind of tricks you along the way into being so sympathetic towards his character and then flips it to the point that you're like, can't be okay with the actions that are being taken. But at the same time, you're like, a morbid part of you is like, this, but, you know, she kind of is getting her just dessert. Like, she, she, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is all how this narrative was always going to go. Like, she's, and then, and then ultimately, um, she yeah. ends up dying as well. So you're like, I mean, yeah, it was like this, like, like he like he talks about the story of like the impetus of the story is that like both of these these girls that he came in contact with didn't make it into adulthood it doesn't seem yeah. like and like neither does Carrie so yeah. like I think that was always a part of the story for him she's ultimately destroyed by society right and you can you can absolutely look at this as the the way society polices women's bodies uh, fears women's bodies fears women in general uh, the patriarchy does and um the power maybe that women have and then like the way society pushes back and destroys right and um it's definitely fascinating to view it through that lens if you want to i think even in one of the quotes i was reading from king is like if you want to look at it that way you can um and i think that's him fully fully admitting that like Plenty of people read this book as just a, you know, horror romp about a, you know, psychic girl who kills a bunch of people and won't necessarily think about societal implications and themes. That's kind of like English, English uh, course level stuff um, that I have to remember. Not everybody necessarily thinks about. But I one of the reasons I highlight it is I don't think it's just like fluff that um, it's not just like bs that we're we're kicking around because it's you know makes us feel smart 
if you want to write stuff like this, I think it's essential to understand and to recognize what these stories are doing. Because I think all of that is deliberate. Whether or not it's all conscious, it's all there when he's writing this book. Um, and I think it's important to be aware of that so that when you go to write your own stuff, you can think about what messages are in there, um, what the purpose of writing it is. Um, so much of Stephen King is on the page here. I think, you know, we, we talk about write what you know is this like axiom you hear a lot. Um, and you're like, how can you say he wrote what he knows when he's writing about, a, uh, you know, a girl's, uh, you know, uh, puberty. Um, it's because a lot of everything else that surrounds that, right? Like, First off, the characters are in high school. He was a high school teacher. Um, he lived through high school himself, obviously. He was young. Um, he was a, he wrote like a column in a newspaper. He is an author. He's got all these like he's got these like newspaper articles and written things that like lean on his experience. Um, there's so many th little things that I was noticing that I'm like he's leaning on the things he knows. It's a set in a town in Maine, a small town in Maine. He's from a small town in Maine. You know what I mean? Like all these things, it's the kind of people he grew up with, the, the situations he's familiar with. So even as, as much as he goes outside and he writes something outside his experience in so many other ways, it is so much his experience. Uh, yeah. I think it's, it's just really interesting as a first book. Yeah. And like you said, I think it, it's worth digging into these stories like this because like everything is intentional because, you know, He's responsible for everything on the page, every word he writes and, and everything, every theme that comes out of it. So the the ultimately we do end with Sue having menstruation, which I think is like, again, there's like a circularity to the narrative starting with menstruation, ending there. Um, each of the epistolary narratives wraps up um, towards the end. We get a wrapping up of the White Commission. We get a wrapping up of each book. Um, you know, one ends with a quote from Bob Dylan and, and so forth. Um, and then... We get this little bit of extra stuff at the end, which you referenced earlier, where there's this young girl named Annie, apparently, and there's like a woman um, writing to her sister and talking about these like powers she does, she's noticed in her little girl. And it's this sort of dun 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 moment of like this power goes on. And I, I wonder if he just meant this as like sort of the the sort of classic it lives moment of like the horror of this is the power and the power continues on, and it's going to be, continue to be a problem. But you, if you look at that in the sense of like feminist power, it's also interesting. But then um, the fear of it is weird. I don't know. There's just a lot there. And then it, it's also fascinating to think about, like you've talked about, he has this entire extended universe throughout his entire career. And there's seeds here to The Shining and to telekinetics and, and psychic powers, which is something that shows up again and again in his novels. Yeah, we get the... Uh... Sue sort of is able to like almost supernaturally follow Carrie's blood trail and then just figure out where Carrie is to find her when she's dying. And they have this like weird moment where Carrie almost like sort of like lets Sue see her dying, like experience the death. Did you get did you get that? Like, yeah, he gets to be in her mind as she dies. Uh, or she. Yeah. So, I mean, and that's it, it, the way these things were written is was incredibly interesting. Like I, I was just so taken with how he decided to write a lot of these scenes. Um, it's just something that you, is really hard to put in film. So um, I'm real excited for this adaptation and see how well he does it. Cause I know it's really well regarded. It's a, it's a big one. A lot of people love. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm super into to watching it and seeing, I'm sure there are certain things with the interiority that aren't going to be able to be on screen, but I'm sure there are other things that work really well. So I'm, I'm fascinating to see that. Um, 
I mentioned earlier, if you are a woman who reads Stephen King, um, I would love to hear from you, honestly, and, and particularly about how he writes women. Um, you can talk about how he writes women in this book. You talk about how he writes women in general. Um, what, how do you feel about it? Um, I, I would love to hear some opinions about that. Let me know if you're okay with me reading stuff on air or if you uh, uh, would like to be remain anonymous, let me know. And we'll, we'll see. You know, I would love to talk about some of that on next episode um, because we're not, obviously, women, so we... We, we don't know. Um, we can just kind of look at it from our perspectives, and that's what we're going to continue to do. And speaking of all that, if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on, or if you're on YouTube, like the video and leave us a comment. And make sure to connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at Ink to Film. Like Luke said, if you wanted to write in, inktofilm at gmail.com or send a comment on on. Uh, any of our social media platforms. And also if you wanted to consider checking out our discord, if you're in our council of inklings on Facebook or anywhere else, if you follow us, you can send us a message or uh, it's actually in the, in the council of inklings, the link for our discord. And we, we just want it to be a cool space where everybody can come and sort of like-minded people who actually listen to the podcast can get together. And we've been in there like having conversations with people and it's been a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah. We can have a chat about this particular episode. You know, I'd, I'd love to, to have that. Um, also, we wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. Okay. I cannot wait to talk about De Palma next week. Uh, a lot of filmmakers talk about how this Brian De Palma Carrie adaptation is like one of their favorite horror films, specifically some of my favorites. Like I know Edgar Wright loves this film, so I'm wow. excited to, to dig into it more. And, and I mentioned that because I mentioned Last Night in Soho earlier in the episode. So everything everything connects eventually. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's funny how the more you start learning about history and stuff, right? Like you start seeing all this connective tissue. It's really cool. Um, Yeah, thank you for coming along for the journey with us. And until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.